The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. His name was John, and he seemed destined for a career in the church. He was a PK, after all, a priest's kid via his dad, plus his mom came from a similar lineage. His grandpa, on his mom's side, was a priest too. Women, of course, weren't allowed to be priests in those days, but as Luke, in his gospel, guides us through Advent and aims us toward Christmas, it is two women, Elizabeth, the mother of John, and her young cousin, Mary, Joseph's betrothed, who share center stage. Mary getting the nod as best actress in a leading role, and Elizabeth for best actress in a supporting role. Their roles beginning when they both miraculously birthed the two boys whose callings would not be to ordained ministry for the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem but rather the salvation of the whole world. Mary's child's birth was miraculous because she, say both Luke and Matthew, became pregnant without she and her fiancé Joseph or she and any man ever doing what people do do. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. without she and her fiancé Joseph doing what people do do to become pregnant. And so her son's birth, say Luke and Matthew, was the only time in the history of the world when a virgin gave birth. Unfortunately, in coming centuries, that truth would be both misunderstood and trivialized by those who later interpreted that Mary's body was surely too holy, and her soul surely too spiritual for something as bodily, as dirty even, as sex with a man. Indeed, later generations would go on to become so sex-averse as to postulate that Mary and Joseph never did physically consummate their 
marriage because to do so would so surely have been defilingly sacrilegious to that holy birth canal and womb. Centuries later, things got taken even further with the doctrine of the Immaculate, Concep Immaculate Conceptions proclamation that Mary was born free from original sin and in her whole life never sinned. All of which, in my opinion, turns the Christmas story into a fairy tale whose lead character is not real. And the moral of which is that the only way God can act is through people who are not real either and are certainly nothing like us. That strain of piety over the years metastasized into a piety that sees holiness and spirituality as a matter of escaping our humanity, which, to be clear, is a strain of humanity found nowhere in the Gospels, where we read that Jesus wasn't born to help us escape or rise above our humanity. He was born to restore us back to the humanity we were created to be human with by joining us, dwelling among us as the flesh and blood human we were always meant to be. It was the angel Gabriel who had told Mary the miracle would come, to which she responded, I do not understand how that can be. I've never been with a man. To which the angel said, God will make it be. To which she said, then let it be, just as you have said. And God being love. Starting then and for nine months to follow, <clears throat> cells divided and multiplied and differentiated and then even began to stir within as love became not spirit, but flesh. Luther liked to say that the greatest miracle of Christmas actually wasn't the virgin birth. He considered the greatest miracle of the season to be Mary's faith. That's something that surely couldn't happen, was surely going to happen. The sole reason being that God had promised that it would happen. Luther, you see, given the choice of what the world or even the church gave him to think or what God gave him to believe, leaned into the promises of God every single time. As did Mary. With her words to the angel Gabriel, let it be to me as you have said, even though I do not understand. And in so doing, she reminds us that if we limit God to only what we can understand, oh my goodness, we've limited God to not being God at all. The angel Gabriel had also appeared to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. <clears throat> the aforementioned priest who was the father of John the Baptist. But Elizabeth, like Mary, was also at the beginning of the story not pregnant, but in her case it wasn't for lack of trying, but for lack of results. For she and Zechariah had tried for years and years, only to be disappointed for years and years, and also therefore to be judged by others for years 
and years. But over the years, apparently, Zechariah had prayed and prayed and prayed for a child. Until the day came when Zechariah was chosen by Lot, out of the 10,000 priests that could have been, Zechariah was chosen to perform his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem where the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. Your wife will bear you a son, and his name will be John. And like Elijah before him, he will turn the hearts of many to the Lord, turning them into a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. Was Zechariah's prayer for a child a prayer he had actually continued to pray in recent years, even though his wife and he were so old, or a prayer he had prayed for years and years a long time ago, but then given up on because, well, obviously it wasn't to be. It doesn't say. All it says is that when the angel told him that his prayer, whenever he had prayed it, was at last now to be answered, Zechariah said, well, if you expect me to believe that, I need you to give me a sign of some sort to prove that what you say is true, because I'm too old for what you're talking about, and Elizabeth's no spring chicken either. Think about this. Zechariah asks for a sign when the sign is standing right in front of his eyes in the person of the angel Gabriel standing there to talk to him. I mean, Zechariah, I'm pretty sure an angel standing right in front of your eyes is a sign. But I'll not judge him for that. For surely countless are the times when I've asked God for signs when in fact they were already there, right in front of my eyes, as well as in scripture speaking into my ears. The angel then said, however, so you want a sign, do you? Well, let me give you a sign that what God has told me to tell you will happen, is going to happen. You have spoken in disbelief because you want proof that it will happen. Well, how's this for proof? You will not be able to speak again until it has happened. And during that time, here's your sign. Your wife's body will show you what is happening. And Zechariah went out of the temple and he couldn't speak and people immediately knew that something, something of God had happened, but they didn't know what it was. And Zechariah then went home to his wife, Elizabeth, and to their bed. And miracle of miracles, after all these years, not only were they physically able to do what needed to be done, but a few weeks later the test came back positive. And Zechariah had his sign. Did he then say to himself, Darn, why did I doubt? I actually think, I actually think maybe not so much. For I think what he thought most of all was, Oh my God, I've always, in the liturgy, said you were great, but I had no idea. You are great with greatness I couldn't even imagine. Thank you.
Six months later, Mary, herself now three months pregnant, came to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And when she arrived, said Elizabeth, the little one in her womb jumped with what Elizabeth perceived as joy to acknowledge, to greet, to already begin preparing the way for the little one in Mary's womb. Mary spent a few months with Elizabeth and no doubt silently, of course, Zechariah listened in as the women talked about both of their miracles. And in his mind and heart, he swelled with praise for God again as he saw now the greatness of God to be even greater than the greatness he already knew he couldn't imagine. Mary returned to Nazareth, and Elizabeth's child then was born. And on the eighth day, as was the custom and practice, they brought him to be circumcised, which in those days also was to be when he would be named. And everyone assumed, as was the custom and practice, that his name would be Zechariah, after his father. But Elizabeth said, remember, she's the only one who could speak, Elizabeth said, no, his name will be John. Obviously, Zechariah had somehow communicated to her that that is what the angel had said. And the people said, he can't be named John. There's nobody in the whole family named John. It's a dishonor to his father. And that's when Zechariah motioned for a tablet, and upon it he wrote, His name is John. Depending on how you understand some versions of the Old Testament, that's not only the first person in the New Testament to be named John, he may also be the first person in the Bible to be named John. It's a name that means Yahweh, the Lord, is gracious. As he affirmed now that his son's name was to be John, no longer, in other words, now disbelieving what the angel had said, but rather now proclaiming what the angel had said, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was freed, at which point he didn't just talk about what had been birthing in his heart and mind for nine months now, for talking wasn't large enough for what was in his heart and mind as he held in his own arms the miracle the angel had promised, and so he did more than talk. He sang. And the song he sang was our psalm for today. He began with praise. Nine months of not being able to speak, <laughs> and beautifully he begins with praise. Blessed be the God of Israel who comes to set us free. And then he moved from praise to prophecy. For he started talking about the birth, not of his son, but of Mary's son. Even though Mary, at this point, was only just finishing her first trimester. But that's what prophets do, and it's what Zechariah did now, for that's how much he's grown. For entirely unlike earlier, when he said that what God promised couldn't happen. He now speaks of God's promise for that future events with such confidence that it is as though it has already happened, as though it is already accomplished, for that's how it is with faith that is as strong as Zacharias is now. When God has promised something, faith considers it to be as good as done. 
For God's promises in God's times are always promises kept. And so Zechariah now speaks of the future in the past tense. <laughs> because God promised, it's done. And so now looking to the future confidently as such, as already done, God, Zechariah now sings to God, You have raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of your servant David. Through your holy promise, prophets, you promised of old to save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy to our forebears, and to remember your holy covenant. This was the oath you swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship you without fear, holy and righteous before you all the days of our life. And then Zechariah continued to prophesy, but doing so now, no longer proclaiming the miracle that was God's, Mary's son, but rather now gazing upon the miracle that was his son. As he sang, you, my child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Fast forward 30 years. And John now is preaching, not in the synagogue, but in the wilderness. And he's telling the people that the one they've waited for for so long, the one God had promised so long ago, is now coming soon. And so he told them to get ready. But it was a peculiar kind of ready he told them to get ready with. For he didn't tell them that the greatest one ever is coming, so get ready by updating your resumes and listing all of your accomplishments and credentials. No, no, not at all. John told people to get ready for this one who was coming by confessing their sin. Which in this season of longing for joy to the world might well sound like a message you don't much want to hear, for you'd prefer something, well, joy full to which I want to say how about the joyfulness of this thought when you greet someone great with a padded resume about your greatness you almost can't not live in fear lest you be found out. But if you greet someone great, and by someone great in this case, I mean the greatest one ever, with your sin. Well, if the promises of our God are God to, are to be trusted, then he's not going to stop. I mean, he'll go to a cross. He'll go to hell and back to find you and to help you find out 
and find out again and find out again and find out again one day at a time, one moment at a time. Oh, sinner, you are loved. And loved you are forgiven. And forgiven, rise up and live. And rising up to live, you be the sign that the Lord is gracious, not only with grace for you, but also with grace for others, for all, through you. Amen.